Good day, good folks. You are listening to Talk That Keeps You Woke. And with your awakening, we hope that you will take in the information and knowledge we provide. So make sure you like and subscribe while you hop on this ride as we inform, persuade, entertain, and engage in discussion. Welcome to Potlicker Podcast, which is knowledge to feed your soul. I make up one half of Potlicker. I go by Dr. A, the inquisitive one. A great debater, Mr. Slow Talker, a rhetorician, and an all-around nice guy, and a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. The other half of Potlicker is my homie, my dear friend for more than 30 years, Ken Parker Jackson Esquire, the legal one, Mrs. Creativity, never obnoxious, the gifted one, a terrific lady, and a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Yes, yes, we are back live better than ever. How are you doing, partner? Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone. I am well. My week was good. And how was your week? I am working a lot, so I am staying busy. Um, I have a tremendous amount of students. But everything is is good. Everything is good. I cannot complain. Welcome aboard to Potlicker Podcast. And for all of those who know, we start our show off with the wow. Uh, so we go back to Angela Davis. What this country needs is more unemployed politicians. At first I was looking at it and I was like, hmm. But then I just think she means that politicians don't need to be paid. If they're not paid, then their perspectives might be different and they might run for real reasons to affect change, not to stay in the office and make money and capitalize off the off of their positions. Um, she could be talking about that. What, what, do, what do you think? What are your thoughts? Interesting, because I had the same thought process where I felt like I honestly don't know exactly what she meant by this. And I love Angela Davis. Um, I know she was kind of anti-capitalism. So kind of like you, I was like, well, maybe she means um, the politician should be out of a job as a politician because they aren't very useful people just in general. Like they don't, they don't even well, should all be volunteers or yeah, that, what you, what you said made sense. Or I was thinking maybe she needed, she, she thinks politicians need to go without income so that they can empathize with their constituents for whom they, you know, pass these policies. So, I don't know. Um, I, I think you still, politician probably still could work, but they're not there for money. And she thinks that maybe more serious people will run. People who really care about causes and they're not doing it for capitalism. Um, I'm not sure. You know, I'm just, this is just my speculation. If, you know, money gets out of the situation then we can have some conversations where um we're not bowing down to any big person that has clout like trump 
folks don't want to upset Trump because they feel that cut, that will cut off the capital faucet for them. So I think if they're unemployed, meaning like they're not employed politicians, they're volunteer politicians, things might change. I'm not sure, but that's what I'm thinking. Okay. It's possible. I mean, because even though you're not receiving a salary for being a politician, you still control the purse strings because Congress votes on the budget. You see what I'm saying? So money is always going to be in politics, whether you're getting paid to be a politician or you're controlling the the country's revenue. But I, 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 I agree with you, but I think you're running... Like a lot of politicians need to like, I have to stay in office and they're staying in office because it's their job. Now, I know they don't make a whole lot of money, but they're they would be upper middle classes with the salaries they earn, I believe. But you have to factor in their power and influence and control that they have. That's worth a lot. They can leverage that. Do you understand what I'm saying? So that's a lot of power and control and influence that politicians have. But aside from the money that they may earn in a salary as as a politician. Well, if you could stop the money from coming in, I would think if you're an unemployed politician, if you can stop the money from like people getting their palms greased, mm-hmm. you know, like by donors and corporations, then right. you're not in the bed with anybody, so to speak. Right. Um, things might run better. <laughs> That's you know, true. You, That's you, a big if. <laughs> yeah, it's an if. Or, you know, you <laughs> might get some if. sincere people in there because it's a lot of work that you have to do. Um, so, um, yeah, I think it's yeah. interesting what she said. And let yeah. us move on. Okay, so this week we're going with the Prada. I know we can't see those glasses. Um, The frames are nice. Um, These were my first pair that I purchased. And I got the kind of studious owl ones uh, (laughs) um, that I wear sometimes too. Like Simon from the Chipmunk. Yeah, people say that. (laughs) A a black Simon or just, you know, uh, a nutty professor, so to speak. I like them though. But uh, yeah, these are uh, Prada and this is our plug, uh, our product for the day. You look quite erudite. Okay, I'll take that. (laughs) Let us move on. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? This was big news. Black woman was hit with a brick and no black men came to comfort or rescue her. This went viral. Um, there was a lot of talk and a lot, a lot of conversation around it. So, um, yeah, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, well, we, we, we watched the video last night. 
was it last night we watched it? Yeah, yeah we, we watched, watched the video, video and you really uh, listen. Let's just talk about the facts that we know because the, the video doesn't tell you everything. That's the thing. So it seemed like a lot of holes in this thing. But this is a woman in Texas. Houston, Texas. Okay. In your neck of the woods. Yeah. A woman in Texas, as you said, has gone viral on social media after a man allegedly hit her in the face with a brick after she refused to give him her number. Posting her video to Instagram, the woman whose name is Ro Bash called out the group of men near her in a parking lot for no not stepping up. I know, no pun intended. Bash. Um, so she she called out the group of men near her in a parking lot for not stepping up when she was allegedly attacked. This is what she said. She said. Y'all, this man just hit me in my face with a brick and all of these black men just watched and they don't give a F, Miss Bash said. This man grabbed a rock and hit me in my effing face because I wouldn't give him my number. The men in the background asked her what she wanted them to do as she showed them the large swelling on her face. What do I want y'all to do? I want y'all to be a man and effing do something. She, she told them off and the men continued to yell at her. Then the video just switches to her crying and wearing a hospital gown as she receives treatment. Then she says, what have I ever done to anyone in my life to deserve this? I never did anything in my life to hurt anybody, she said. Literally, the man asked me for my number and I said no. He picked up a brick in front of so many men and asked, what are you going to do? I told all of the men, why does this man have a brick over my face? He's holding a brick and all of these N-words are watching and nobody does nothing. And he hits me in my face and they're all just watching. How is this okay? Is this what y'all doing to women? She says, I can't even chew food for the next week. I'm so afraid. Like, why do people want to hurt me so bad? So, yeah, this is, this is all that we know happened. But my thing is, and let me just preface my, my reaction by saying, I, I definitely agree with Malcolm X when he said the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. The most neglected person in America is the black woman. Now I get all that. I agree with that. However, I just don't think anybody is obligated to get into an altercation after the fact for a stranger, somebody that they, that, you know, that they don't know. Now, if they can prevent someone from getting hurt without endangering themselves or endangering their family, then fine. Yeah, you should do that. You should try to prevent someone from getting hurt. But if this man hit her with a brick just because she didn't give him her phone number, then you already know you're dealing with somebody who is crazy and unstable. Like that's just, that's just irrational. So I, this is kind of a dilemma for me, but I, I, I will say that, you know, you could, people shouldn't, once it's over and she was hit with a brick and that's, that's terrible, but you shouldn't like, continue 
the altercation or escalate the altercation by attacking these, you know, att physically attacking this man who supposedly hit her in the face with a brick. You understand what I'm saying? Because we never saw her get hit. We just saw kind of the aftermath with the swollen face and everything. So either but there were you know, there were people around that saw her get hit. So she did get hit in the face with a brick because okay. the bystanders that said I was there when it happened said it happened. So she's not falsifying information. So it's not right, allegedly. It, uh, okay. So, but do you think? Okay, why would somebody hit somebody in the face with a brick for not for rejecting them and not giving? them a phone number i mean why do stupid people do stupid things that's right. your question it's like <laughs> you said it was irrational you're not dealing right. with a rational mind person, right. right we didn't go they didn't go into full details about what was said they tried to and when i'm saying they i'm talking about the there were two the young men that were bystanders that mm -hmm. were on a video talking and they were characterizing her in a way they felt she wasn't deserving of somebody coming to her attention um yeah. i would just like to say personally if the man had a brick and was in her face and was holding it for a while i think people not just men anybody could have stepped in front of the lady and say hey man you really don't want to do this. Try to calm the individual down. Now, folks are going to say, yeah, Dr. A, but there's a chance they could have hit me. So it's kind of like fight or flight or fight or freeze, um, so to speak. So I I understand the fear people may have. Yeah. Um, I don't, she in no way says that they needed to beat her, him up. That never came out of her mouth. They said, why? didn't anybody do anything anything is you know a plethora of like choices like step in front of her try to talk the guy down if she was hurt call the ambulance so on and so forth we we don't know uh if anybody did call for that um was she upset of course she was um but i think we just have to be careful of labeling all black men because there were people who commented you know either written or verbally through video about black men not protecting the black woman and even my partner just uh came in with malcolm x saying <laughs> you know this could be the reason just because these particular men didn't do it that doesn't mean that black men would not protect. And we can go back to the riverboat when that black male got jumped. Mm -hmm. Black men rushed to his, you know, side to help. So let's not make it a blanket statement. She could say, why didn't these guys around her didn't do anything? Well, um, it's one thing to to uh de decline to intervene but but i think for them to say well what do you want me to do that's a little uh what's the word uh apathetic like they're like what well, 
it sounds as if they're not even concerned. If they would, if they say something like, well, what do you want me to do? That's like, you don't even care. Like, can you at least, maybe they could have escorted her away before she got hit by the brick. Maybe they could have uh, rendered aid to her. She felt from my perspective, from what I'm hearing her say, it seems as if she felt abandoned. Like you guys just don't even care. Like, Nobody I don't is, I think when we start saying we don't care, that's going too far. What to you me. want me to do doesn't sound what, like what to me that sounds like that sounds like some some people confused <laughs> and maybe frozen, not knowing what to do, looking at the guys like this guy ain't gonna hit her with that brick or anything like that. So they didn't step in to do it. And then they would say, What what he may have hit me with the brick. You know, um, that's what they could have been thinking about. Um, they could have been thinking about themselves more so than her, you know. Um, so, you know, what is it? Self-preservation first? You might call that cowardly, okay, but can't say that they wasn't caring. But then they're defending themselves because their manhood or masculinity is being attacked. That's true. Cause she said, I, when, when, when they said, what do you want me to do? She was like, I want you to be a man. Mm -hmm. So you've just challenged their manhood. So that's not really how you want to um, address someone. If you need assistance, <laughs> you don't want to insult them. Um, that's not helpful, but it would be great if they would just could have at least shown some concern for her, her safety. And that's why I was speculating, and it's only speculation, that maybe she didn't give us the whole story. I mean, no, nothing would justify being hit in the face with a brick. However, you, for example, would you, would you, There's something would you have a different, but would you have a different reaction if you felt that she antagonized the man? Yeah, and, so when you say if, that, you you just said nothing justifies getting in the hit in the face. It, it doesn't. But I'm, what are you I'm, talking about? So I'm just if saying, she would have been attacking the man and she had like a knife or gun or whatever, yeah, you justifies for smacking her in the face with a brick. If somebody trying to take your life out, if she right. was deranged, so that's she, why I'm saying perhaps, and I'm just like I said, it's speculation. Perhaps she did not disclose the whole story. Maybe well, they felt as she if was... she maybe they felt as if she antagonized him or brought it on or maybe hit him. Who knows? You know what I mean? If she so, didn't do anything physically to him, I agree with your sentiments about like why is this guy hitting her in the face with a brick? He should be arrested, you right. know, definitely, because that's an assault almost. Attempted murder, like or whatever, right. you right. know, because so, that was I mean, intentional. You would, you would think that they, like I said, would at least be like, "Oh my God, let me call nine one one and and report the report it to the police or call an ambulance to get her some help." It just seems like she felt like they just left her hanging. Like at least try to help me. Like so that's why. And I, then she blames all. I I don't know. She's blaming all black men, but something went on there. But, you yeah. know, we, you know, pray for her. Hope she has a speedy recovery and hope. hopes nothing like this ever happens again to the lady because. Uh, 
We don't need that. No. Let us move on. All right. Okay, so Fanny Willis letter. Yes, so Fanny, let's talk about it. Okay. Uh Fulton County, Georgia, District Attorney Fannie Willis blasted House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan, who's a Republican congressman representing the fourth district in Ohio. She blasted him for his demand that she turn over all documents related to her case against Donald Trump and the 18 other people she indicted last month. This was a nine page scathing letter that she basically took him to school in. And this, to me, this just highlights how men like Jim Jordan try to abuse the power that they have as elected officials by trying to intimidate certain people, certain people into doing what they want them to do. So I believe that because she's a black woman. Or overreacting. He underestimated her and assumed that she was just going to fold and acquiesce to his demand. But house and ever, <laughs> he didn't know that she is well aware of the power that she has as the district attorney of Fulton County, Georgia. And she basically, like I said, had to take him to school. And she said, that's not how this works, sir. Your money is no good here. The power you have in Congress is of no moment here in the sovereign state of Georgia. I'm running this prosecution. And if you keep it up, I'll prosecute your ass for obstruction of justice. That wasn't so in the need, letter. You need, I, this is all me. At, this is my commentary. Okay. okay. This is how I took the letter. From what I read, when I read through that nine-page letter, that's the that's the tone of it. That was the tone of the letter for me. You can base, she said, you can kick rocks with open-toed shoes. That's you don't you don't tell me what to do, sir. And <laughs> I particularly like the part where she said, if you don't, and he went to law school too. I did a little bit of research. He went to law school in somewhere in Ohio. I don't I don't know what school, but anyway. She was like, if you don't understand how this works, if as a non-member of the bar in Georgia, you can order it for $249. I that that one took me out. I was like, okay, she is not playing. One I thing think, you don't want to do is mess with a black woman and have to get red like this, but there you go. You're gonna F around and find out. All right, so let's. <laughs> Unpack this read, a little bit. You want to read something? No, of I think I think that what this is just my opinion. I think what Jim Jordan was trying to do was mm -hmm. play on a stereotype. He was trying to make uh, Attorney Willis right mm -hmm. um, have an irrational moment so he can play upon the black woman trope of the angry black woman, right? Um, where he can say, well, look who's in charge of this. She's irrational, she's emotional, she's this, she's that. 
what I loved about it, um, and this is no surprise to me, is that, you know, even though she did uh, intellectually spank him, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, that's what she did. She used the law, right? She used her intelligence and she wrote a letter which was appropriate. Right. It wasn't wild or irrational. Right. It was calm, cool, and collective. And was like, these are the facts. You're not scaring me. As a matter <laughs> of fact, you need to brush up on how things work. Exactly. So I'm going to tell you how things work if you don't know. I'll humor you. And I thought that was a, a well-written letter. Yes. Um, that got at the crux of everything that he was attempting to do. Right. Um, because like you said, he's an attorney. He's in right. Congress. These guys are not, you know, stupid. Right. They try to bring out stuff so people can say she's in no position to be. And this is all my opinion. She's in no position to lead this. You know, she's irrational. She's hatred. She's this. She's angry, blah, blah, blah. She was none of that in the letter. She was an educator in the letter. That's it. Right. And so that's what I liked about it. And I like how she said a better use of your time Mm -hmm. would be to pass some legislation Mm -hmm. that could actually help us here in Georgia. Mm -hmm. Help us to get more resources to prosecute cases like these rape cases and things of that nature. Yeah. And how about maybe you can... uh, she she was like, you're just overly concerned about Donald Trump and his 18 co-conspirators. Focus on doing your job and make life better for some of your constituents. How about that? Yeah. So, yeah. She she had a lot of patience with how she (laughs) sat there and explained everything to him. By the way, he went to Capital University in uh, Capital University Law School in Ohio. Yeah, I've never heard of it. Mm-hmm. But um so law school none. I mean, I just don't have I, I I just don't have the kind of patience that she has to methodically go through a whole nine-page letter and explain everything do. to I, I don't have that do. kind of patience with these people who know I, I think he actually knows better than that. Of course he does. Right. But like I said, they try to intimidate certain people and or then they also right, anti and then they also think that the law doesn't apply to them. Now the Republicans are about law and order and the rule of law, and this is a nation of laws. But when the law is used against them, now it's a problem. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? So boy bye. Kick rocks. And let us move on. <laughs> okay, we move on to the world of entertainment. Sean Combs, better known or also known as P. Diddy, returns uh, or could be monies to artists that he used to work with. And some people are saying about time that he did so. Um, so yeah, so in, 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 in the, uh, in the article that I read, I did BBC, which one did you read? 
Yeah, that's the article. I read. Is that BBC? Yes, it is. Yeah, so they, they to- broke it down. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, some of the artists he was they were talking about uh, were artists that were I don't know from my young generation. Um, Mace, Faith, Faith Evans. Uh, one twelve, one twelve, the locks, locks and the notorious, notorious yeah. known as Biggie Smalls. Um, Bad boy. A source with knowledge of the deal said Combs had previously been offered millions of dollars to sell the rights. The value of music publishing the rights has increased dramatically in recent years with artists like Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Debbie Harry, Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Nicks, and Shakira foregoing future royalties in exchange for nine-figure sums. Irv Gotti, you know, from Murder, Inc., just sold his catalog for $300 million. So yeah, that yeah, this is that, very uh, lucrative. Yeah, right. Uh, Combs declined uh, those offers in favor of giving back to the people who helped build his company. Uh, the BBC has been told. Uh, Billboard's and Rolling Stone have also reported the deal. The star who scored his own hits with tracks like "I'll Be Missing You," "Can't Nobody Hold Me Down," and "Bad Boy for Life" made the move on the 30th anniversary of his label. However, the process of reaching out to the artists and writers began in May of 2021. While most of the parties have agreed to the deal and signed contracts, others are still being tracked down. So they're still looking uh, for for people in this situation. But Mace was waiting for He'd been asking for his stuff for years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um yeah the 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 music as q tip say you know industry rule number three thousand and eighty record what does he say record company people are shady, so the industry is very shady mm-hmm. um it's been that way for a long time. artists have been getting ripped off for a long time, so um it seems like Diddy did the right thing here what yeah. say you? I think this is great. And to me, this is, I think, an an example of what I think will be required of us in the Black community to take us to the next level. And what I mean by that is, I think we have to start to be willing to make individual sacrifices for the benefit of the community as a whole. Cause a lot of people don't do that, especially financially. Now, I think this is what Malcolm and, and um, Martin did. They said, but they sacrificed their lives. And I think it's an inspiration. We should be inspired to do the same. Now, nobody wants to die, of course, but I'm just saying in terms of like, for example, here, Diddy made a personal financial sacrifice and I think I think he should be commended for it. I think he could have done it sooner, but uh, you know, better late than never. And I think he may have gotten religion, so to speak, if you will, because he's currently, I don't know if you know about this, but you, he's currently suing Ciroc for discrimination because they didn't provide the same type of support for Ciroc that they did for Casamigos and some of the, the other labels that come under um, 
under the brand. And he was claiming that he took, he wanted ownership in Ciroc, but instead it was kind of like a marketing deal that he did with them. And he was able to take Ciroc from selling 40,000 cases and losing $40 million a year, all the way up to selling 2.6 million cases a year. And so he's saying, I, I did what a lot. The compensation, though? Well, he felt that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't enough. He wanted ownership, but they just wanted, they, he said he felt like they were limiting using his name the for brand, publicity. right. And limiting the brand to an urban brand, as opposed to appealing to a wider audience. He was like, why, why does it have to be black? Like, why can't you put the same, uh, resources and investment into this label that you're putting into Casamigos? Like Casamigos is not marketed as a brand for white people. It's like for everybody, you know what I mean? Like, and so why are you trying to pigeonhole Ciroc into being like this urban brand? I don't That's think what he was thinking, but the point yeah. of what, the point of what I'm trying to say okay. is that I think because he's having these personal experiences of feeling as if he's being taken advantage of, then perhaps he's like, well, why should I turn around and do this to my brothers in the business? Like, my brothers and sisters in but the he business. Already like had, we, he already had. to have. He already you know, had ownership. done that. He already had done that. Already this had is, done what? Take advantage of his brothers in the business. But people that's been why complaining I'm saying. But that's been, why I'm saying, Doctor A, that perhaps now he's gotten religion, and that's why now he's come to the point after having this personal experience. Like, we, I want to empower them. Like, I want to be empowered. You see what I'm saying? That's what I mean by. I think he got religion, got and he the, the more correct way to say it, I I would say is like, wow, I took advantage of all these people. Now I know how it feels. Right. To me, and that's so what now he I'm wants to do. The right thing. Yeah. 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 So let me, you know, correct, you know, my behavior right. more exactly. So. And so, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just about to say. So my overall point is. Maybe this is the path that we should take in in the black community. Like let's because we have a lot of people in our community who have been uh who have become individually wealthy. We all know that there's still a a, a wealth gap, a racial wealth gap in America. And people like to point to people like Oprah and Bob Bob Johnson and Robert Smith and Michael Jordan and all all the, you know, uh, wealthy people in the black community, but that's just a few people. Those are individuals. And so I think, you know, you can do really well individually in America, but I think in order for more of us to do well, these kinds of sacrifices may need to be made. That's all I'm saying. Okay. I, I would agree. Okay. I would agree. And let us move on. Don't stop now. Yes, so today 
I want to highlight a brand that I love and it's called Faces, Bodies, Soul Jewelry. Now I have worn, you guys know, I love accessories. I love bags and shoes and jewelry and, you know, hats and those types of things. And Faces, Bodies, Soul Jewelry um, made these earrings that I've worn on the, on the podcast before. So I, I'm definitely a loyal customer of Faces, Body, Soul Jewelry. I so far have three pairs of earrings from Faces, Body, Soul Jewelry. Here's one. And this one features kind of a ethnic uh, pattern. Um, I love these. And I also have this pair that has um, an ethnic print, beautiful. And then I also bought this pair. So I love this brand and it's owned by Dr. Felicia York. She um, is a black woman. So this is a black owned business. Um, I had an amazing, a beautiful experience uh, ordering from this com company. I got my package promptly. It was beautifully wrapped. Everything was just a seamless transaction. And I would encourage everybody to follow this business on Instagram, Faces, Body, Soul, Jewelry, and support. You'll see some beautiful things. So the sky's the limit for this uh, for this brand. Yeah, those of you who are watching, you can see the QR code right there. So if you do that, it will bring you to the IG link where you can order uh, what you like. So we have a new uh, segment coming on. I'm sorry, we having some uh, slight difficulty. Oh, we having some technical difficulties? Yeah, because our next, uh, unless we want to jump to trust issues. Oh, our person's not there? I don't, I don't see them. Okay, let me call her. Anyway, um, while we're dealing with this situation, I will throw the QR code back up yes. for faces, body, and soul so y'all can take a look at that. And, and we can entertain you a little bit.
Okay, I hope y'all got that from Faces Body uh, and Soul. Faces Body and Soul Jewelry. And let us move on. Okay, so we have a special guest in the building today. And I'm going to let my partner introduce our guest. Well, hello. Hi. Welcome to Pot Liquor Podcast, Miss Paula Udo. Hi, Paula. How are you? Hello, Kimberly. I'm well. I'm like... <laughs> Hi, Doctor A. How are you? Does Paula get I'm any? Great. Does Paula get any applause? <laughs> you didn't give her much of an introduction. I didn't say anything. Say Let's something. give a warm welcome to Paula Udo. So today, we kind of want to talk a little bit about race and culture. You know, race is always an issue um, in America. It just is. But we kind of want to address it from a little bit of a different perspective today. We want to kind of address race and culture. And for, we want to get to know you a little bit, Miss Udo. Can you just sort of give us a... Um, just tell us a little bit about, about yourself, like where you grew up and what your experience was like where you grew up. For example, what was the name of your high school? Dartmouth. I, I went to Dartmouth High School, which is in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, which is a small suburb not far from Cape Cod. And uh, I won't say when I graduated, but it was many moons ago. <laughs> and, um, uh, so, I mean, I guess, I don't know, a little bit by way of background. So um, by way of background, we ended up in, I am Cape Verdean. Um, so my father's parents actually immigrated from Cape Verde Islands. And my father grew up in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, which is where I grew up. And that's how we ended up there. So they sort of had the immigrant story of trying to find a better life and then moving from a city to a suburb. So that's how we ended up in Dartmouth. And um, Dartmouth at the time had two other black families and I was related to one and the other one I just knew tangentially. Wow, so what was the, what was the makeup of your high school class? Or, or your high school, the high school period, like were there, was it predominantly white or? Yeah, I mean, uh, super majority white, I guess you would say. I mean, I think if I recall correctly, there were seven black students in the high school of, I think each class had about 200 in the class. So out of the 800 students, about seven were African-American and or I don't recall if anyone was actually like from the continent, but um, black people, yeah. Okay. So I'm hearing like a little bit of a, 
a little noise in the background. Do you have on a fan or something? Oh, yeah. Do I need to turn that off? <laughs> <laughs> I, think it's I don't want to be all sweaty and stuff, but all oh, right. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think it's blowing into the mic and it's like making a funny sound. Okay. So um, okay. can I move? I got to move to turn it off. So Okay. Be Let's see if it makes a difference. Okay, move. Go ahead. Let's see. Okay. Go ahead and turn. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? That you can hear it in the background. Let's see if it makes a difference. Okay, can you hear me better now? That did it. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. Well, if don't pass out or anything now, if you feel overheated, turn it back on. We want to have you upright. You know what? (laughs) Don't start, Kimberly. (laughs) Do not start. (laughs) Anyway, um, yeah. So. Okay. So. Okay. So. Can you tell us, like, How, did you? Well, let me jump in because I think you, I know where we want to go with this. How did that impact you personally? How did it impact your personality? How did it impact you culturally? How did it impact you um, just socially? Good question, Dr. A. Um, <laughs> what I would say is, I mean, I think the most obvious, um, which, uh, Kimberly and I uh, had the experience of attending graduate school together, and she used to tease me about this. But my dialect, uh, many people, like when I talk on the phone, they assume I'm white. Um, When I show up and look the way I do, people are often surprised. So um, my dialect, I think, was directly impacted by the way in which I grew up. And then socially, I didn't realize growing up, I mean, I grew up you know, my dad was a chemist. My mom stayed home. Um, you know, there wasn't any, it was very, I guess, uh, leave it to beaver, if you will. Uh, the doors were open. Uh, there was no crime, uh, uh, that kind of an environment. And so I didn't realize, I guess, socially how much I was disconnected from a lot of my fellow African-Americans experience until I got to college. Mm-hmm. Did the, at your school, your high school, or just your school district period, did you make a lot of friends growing up? You know, I was very popular um, actually. And I mean, believe it or not, I was the head cheerleader for my high school. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, only because I wanted to get into the football games free, and that was the path uh, for that. So I was very popular. I had a lot of friends. I think where the intersection often happened is I remember for my junior prom, for example, uh, it was still, I mean, back then, if I had gone with one of my white friends, that would have been a scandal. Okay. And honestly, I didn't want to go with a white friend, but there were no black people to take me. And I actually remember the one other black family that lived in the community, she had a younger brother. And that's who I went to the prom with. I mean, went is in quotes because we had never really met each other. Um, I told him my dress was white with a red sash. He showed up in a light blue tux. Uh, So that was already a disaster. And I think once we crossed the threshold of the prom, we didn't even interact. Um, So whenever those types, I did not date in high school. uh, 
that was by choice. I mean, again, I think it would have been frowned upon, um, but also it was more, it was my personal choice that that was not the direction I wanted to go in anyway. Mm. And you felt comfortable in this environment though, right? Because this is all you knew and you just, or, or did you not feel comfortable? I did. I mean, I felt yeah. comfortable. I felt like, you know, playing the yard, you know, when I look back, all of, you know, all of that was fine. I just always knew that I was black. Um, I never thought I wasn't. Um, and I really was looking forward to going to college and having the experience of having black friends. That was really what I was looking forward to. So, you and I went to similar high schools. There were more blacks in my high school probably than yours. I also grew up outside of New York. So if, you know, mm-hmm. expanding, there were cultural outlets for us, definitely. I went to an all-black church and I lived in an all-black community. Um, mm-hmm. But all of us went to school together from nursery school to high school with, okay. you know, our white friends that we grew up with. I was telling Kim this before, like, Race didn't really come into play until the dating game came in. Mm, That's yes. when you knew that at least when I was in school, it was from, it was forbidden. It was like uh, the unspoken word, like you, yes. you, you not you don't date the Jewish white girls. Um, so that didn't happen. So you had to turn to your community, uh, other communities, um, where that wasn't the case. So I understood that. And that was my reason for um, one of the major reasons that I selected to attend the HBCU. What undergrad did you did you attend? I went to Smith College. So I went from uh, the pot into the frying pan, so to speak, in that my I have two older sisters. They both attended Smith College. And for my father, it was very important. He wanted all three of his daughters. Uh, to go there. I was set on going somewhere else. I had actually planned to go to Brown. And uh, my father said, well, you can um, pay for Brown or you can go to Smith College. So obviously I went to Smith College. <laughs> um, so, I mean, looking back now, I wish I had known about Spelman and Howard, although honestly, I don't think my father would have allowed me in that direction. Mm. But but I okay, got it in grad school. Okay, so you said you were looking forward to going to college because you were looking forward to having more black friends. Now Smith is an all all women school, yes. right? Liberal all arts women, too, right? Liberal right. arts, all women in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is way in western Massachusetts. Um, but I figured I knew from my sister's experiences. Uh, my older sister actually was in the same class as. Um, Martin Luther King's daughter, Yolanda King, was at Smith when my sister was there. So I felt like even though it wasn't going to be a whole bunch of people, it was certainly going to be more people than I grew up with. Uh, so um, that Is was it still all girl and still all women. Thank you. <laughs> and, was, and so was that your experience? You did end up having more black friends? Well, you know, this is the, um, you know, I don't want to like, uh, play the violin, but, you know, I was so excited to go. And um, I actually had two, actually three black women in my, um, at Smith, you live in houses, not dorms. And so 
the house might have 50 women in it. And um, so on my floor were three women, uh, black women. So I was very excited and sort of got along with them like very easily. Um, I also was the only one who had a hair dryer. So that certainly um, made me very popular as well. Yeah. Uh, so I remember uh, after the first week of school, the Black Student Union was going to have their first meeting. And I was so excited. I just I remember changing my outfit like four or five times. I was like, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for. Right. And I go to the meeting and there are about 30 other black women. And I'm like, finally, you know, it's going to be great. And I was talking to one of them who was from Atlanta. And she was talking about, well, after this, we're all going to go back to the crib. And I said, why would we go to a crib? Isn't a crib for a baby? I mean, it was, and she looked at me and other people looked at me and my great notion of like all these black friends pretty much evaporated at that moment because people started saying I talked funny. They had never heard of Cape Cod. And I just, um, that's when it became very clear to me that culturally I was just missing a whole piece of my experience. And so is that why you applied to Howard Law? 1,000%, (laughs) 1,000%, without a doubt. I mean, after college, I was supposed to, as you know, I mean, I took three years off before law school and moved to the Virgin Islands. And that was a wonderful, fantastic experience and really was instrumental in changing my law school trajectory because when I graduated from Smith, I had been accepted to Yale and I deferred. And then when I was in the Virgin Islands, I kept deferring. And then I kept meeting all these Howard lawyers and it just really changed. And I thought, you know, I want my law degree to come from the law school that made it possible to go to any of the other law schools. And that's how I ended up at Howard, the best, best, best decision. That was beautiful the way you said that. Say that again. You wanted to go to the law school that what? That the was law so school amazing. that started it all. That made it, it possible. possible for everybody to go wherever they wanted wherever to. Wherever they wanted to go. I love that. I love that. So there was something in you. This is what I love about this story is that now I believe that she could have felt like you could have felt like I'm not going to be accepted. I'm not going to be accepted by the black community. This is just, it's not working. Like, but you, there was something in you. Like to me, it's like an, an, an innate desire to immerse yourself in your own culture, even though to some extent you were a little bit rejected. But, <laughs> a little bit. You know what I mean? I was rejected. I still have the scars. No, I kidding. know, but what I'm saying is a lot of people would have just resorted back to what was comfortable, but I like that you, do you understand what I'm saying? Like comfortable just being um, a part of, or uh, what's the word, Um, assimilated into the white community. But I think you persisted with wanting to immerse yourself in your own culture, even though (laughs) you weren't necessarily totally familiar with that. Do you see what I'm saying? Does that make yeah. sense? Am I say, am, she, am I overstating she, she, or understanding or misstating that? Okay. No. 
go ahead, Doctor Avery. I, I, no, because I, I thought when you went to the Virgin Islands, that's when you really got immersed, and then your decision was like, "Why am I going to leave this blackness to go back to like <laughs> the oh oh a predominantly white environment, so to speak?" Well, I think there's one piece during my college experience that really, um, I think, Kim, yes, you're right. I mean, I always knew, like I said, I always knew I was Black. I was always proud of that. And and so is my family. I wasn't raised as if, you know, let's pretend that we're them. That wasn't how I was raised. I think my parents just felt that was the best environment they could provide for us. Uh, but after my initial rejection uh, through, you know, whatever you want to call it, but I met, I was a president of the pre-law society my sophomore year, and I put on a program and uh, a student from Western New England College was our speaker. And um, you know George, and George to this day is one of my closest friends. And George's experience was the exact opposite of mine. I mean, he was from the south side of Chicago, paying his own way um, through Western New England College. I mean, just really hustling, just trying to get through. Um, and I remember even one time when I dropped him off, he had a mattress on the floor. And I said to him, where's your bed frame? He's like, bed frame? You know, I'm lucky I got this mattress. So I really, George really was... I would say the first person who understood that I just didn't know and I wasn't trying to um, offend people. I just didn't know. And he really began to bridge the gap for me and sort of start to, you know, educate me about our culture in many ways. And then you're right, Dr. A, that did drive my decision then to go to the Virgin Islands. And once I was down there, it was like, wow. And then, yeah, that led me to Howard, which, by the time I entered Howard, I, I felt like I was more self-aware in terms of I knew I had gaps in my cultural and social experience. And I had realized at that point, sometimes I just needed to listen more and just, you know, learn. So that was sort of my approach at Howard. Okay. So this brings us to the conversation we really want to have, right? <laughs> Uh-oh. There, there are some people who have the same journey as you. Well, a similar journey, but they come to that fork in the road and they choose to stay with the familiar. Mm. And then some people say, you know what, I want to get more immersed and understand and, um, you know, socialize with my own community. I want to know the cultural things. I want to know the street vernacular, so on and so forth. Um, so when it comes to people like Tim Scott, um, I don't really laugh at Tim Scott. I wonder what his background is because I really, I don't know. I don't want to say he went to a school like you and I. He may have not, um, but there's a good chance that he has. And I understand African-Americans who are devoid of some of their black culture because I went to school with folks that were heavily indoctrinated by white supremacy. I would say your dad's decision, like you said, if you wanted to go to a Spelman or a Clark, he would have been like, no, stay with Smith College because mm -hmm. Smith College is, a, if folks who don't know, is a very prestigious 
liberal arts college college in the New England area. Um, so there's a lot of kids uh, from my school that went to, to to Smith College. So I understand that. I don't make I don't make fun of it a light of it. I just understand that and just try to help people you know, immerse themselves deeper. I'm a facilitator, so to speak, a cultural facilitator. So when I see, hear Tim Scott, it's like, I feel like Tim Scott is like, you're trying so hard to let these white folks know, like, I'm one of you. Like, <laughs> I understand your language and your culture. No, and I, where, I where, agree. What? No, but I was just going to say, I think, but what I disagree with you on is you had said that People like Tim Scott are the way they are because they don't have knowledge of their own culture. You're not, and I, you're not letting me finish what I said. I'm okay, saying so you didn't. He, he, he's the one that chose the fork in the road not to go the way Paula went. And I don't know Tim Scott, though. Tim, this could all be a front. I can meet Tim Scott. He could be like, yo, what up, Nick? Like, he could say that. I don't know if he's pretending because I don't know him personally. But okay, but the way he, hold on. The way he talks, he is trying to please white culture and let folks know, like, this black skin shouldn't affect your vote because I'm just like you, just of a different skin color. Okay, but why do you think there are those black people in uh, in in the black community that have that perspective? Do you think it's because they don't have a knowledge of their own culture? Is that how you would characterize it? Because that, that's they, what you had said before. And I okay. said, that's not necessarily true. Okay, so Sometimes either, they do know, okay, but and, they reject. They, they reject it or deny it. Yes, that right. could be. You're right. Like I said, I don't know Tim Scott. Mm -hmm. He could be that. Or he could have no knowledge of it. I'm familiar with both of those characters. Right. Okay. You know, and how they act. It shocks me, though. I don't care how white your experience is. I would like to say there's some point in your life that you experience uh, racism. N-word wake-up call? Oh. No, just <laughs> racism. Like, you... Yeah. you Unless you're but Meghan treat, Markle. Treat, treated unfairly. Huh? Unless you're Meghan Markle and you don't no, well, treat it like a black person until you marry well, a prince. That's when she found out. When she went to, <laughs> took her to go to Europe to find out, like, wait a minute. This really exists. You know? Yeah. Which is sad commentary. But like I said, I understand how Meghan Markle grew up. And no, how but she she's the opposite of she's the opposite of Paula's experience, though, because she it sounds like she had a similar upbringing to Paula, but she, instead of embracing her own culture, she embraced the culture with which she was more familiar. Was she surrounded by her culture? I don't no, think she didn't. really was. I think most of her friends, because her father was white, I think a lot of her friends were white. Mm -hmm. And I think she was, it's just like Madison Keys, the tennis player. Mm -hmm. She is biracial, mm -hmm. but she does not identify, she says, with either. Like, it's almost as if she wants to present herself as she's just neutral, which there yeah. is no neutral in the United States of America no, or anywhere no. else. Well, 
I'll be kinder. I think that they don't want to deny either race. And they feel like if I'm if I say I'm black, I'm denying my whiteness. If I say I'm white, I'm denying my blackness. And so they're caught in that conundrum. And I don't know how that conundrum is because I'm fully black, right? So I, you may can speak to it way better than I can because when you told me about your community, that's the difference from us. Like, I, I have a good, a good friend I went to college with. He's actually Dick Gregory. Y'all know who Dick Gregory is? Yes. Son. Mm -hmm. The Gregory's lived in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Yes. A lot of white folks. He went to school and he, he would come home and he would be dating white girls and his father would get irritated. He told this story, you know, in a group at Morgan. He said, you know, what did you expect me to do, dad? He's like, why are you bringing home all these white girls, blah, blah, blah. She says, the only black girls in the school are my sisters and my cousin. Why are we living here? And that shocked Dick Gregory. You know, and that's the story he told. I never forget. This was in mm -hmm. our, his freshman year, my sophomore year, mm -hmm. uh, at, at at Morgan State. Um, and this this is what happens. Like, you only have what you, that what surrounds you. There were so many people at Morgan State further along in knowledge of self than I was because where I was brought up. Mm -hmm. And so it was like slightly cultural shocking to me, but I. I turned angry at my school district because I felt they denied me my, I, my identity of myself and just gave me the curriculum of whiteness. Welcome mm -hmm. to America. Right. Yeah. Welcome to I, America. Yeah, I think that is America. I think, <laughs> and I understand your point, and I think that there is, I mean, I think Tiger Woods is another example of that. He initially said he didn't want to, sort of say he was black because that would deny his mother who was, you know, Thai. But the reality is in America, it's black and white. That's what it is. You got to <laughs> yeah. choose a side. Sorry, but that's just it. And um, you can go through and be Meghan Markle or maybe Madison Keys and pretend it doesn't matter, but trust and believe <laughs> someone will let you know. And when right. Meghan Markle decided she wanted to be part of the royal family, they let her know. Right. <laughs> Girl, you ain't one of us. You black. Right. You're going to stand behind Harry and you're going to keep it moving. And Kate is the epitome of what we want. And Harry's a little odd. He always has been. And we're going to tolerate it. But girl, you black. And they let her know that in London and everything else. So, you know, she ran back to America because, you know, it is what it is. And so, um, you know, yeah. I have, yeah, I just, I just think you have to choose and, um, you know. Or it will choose you. Or it will choose you. Get pulled and, uh, over by the police and see yeah. what, what, what you are. And so, I think somebody like Tim Scott is probably, you know, look, he's a politician and, you know, the country um, is based on white supremacy. It always has been. And he wants to succeed. And the way that he feels he's going to be able to succeed is by not being threatening. I right. guess in some way. Right. And I think even honestly, you know, Barack Obama being raised by his white mother took some of the sting out of it for oh, people. Yeah. Yeah. So he wasn't, you know, he wasn't scary. 
And yeah. it's like, okay, you're not going to make us pay for all our sins. Right. You understand because your mom's one of us. And um, yeah. that is the conundrum of America. Yeah. So Tim Scott is trying to skate on that side. I mean, I don't know his background either. Right. Um, but I would bet this is why he's skating the way that he is. Mm. So. Indeed. I don't know, but you know, and I can also thank, you know, Kimberly was a little bit of a, cult, a cultural, uh, you know, <laughs> trainer for me at Howard. So I do appreciate that. She always brought the uh, cultural piece. I mean, I'm still, my biggest area is I'm missing a lot of the music. I mean, I just, I, I just, <laughs> just don't know. I grew up on Barry Manilow. I don't even think I should say that out loud, but. I mean, we all listen to Barry Manilow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I didn't know, um, like the whole, I remember when I got to college and the whole, like, George Clinton and Parliament. Yeah. I knew none of that. None of that. Yeah. None of that. None of that. I did not understand um, what was going on. I still have periods where I'm like, really? Oh, okay. Didn't know that. And that was a big part. You know, I have a son who's 21 now, and um, we grew up, he grew up in an environment very similar to how I grew up. And at the age of four, uh, we made the decision to move to Philadelphia. Uh, driven by me because I did not want him to have that experience. Oh, and okay. I'm what part really, of Philly did you live in? We lived in Rittenhouse Square. Okay. So, That's downtown but, a little. Yeah, but we were in the city and he went to, you know, he went to private school. But fortunately for us at the time, there was a good number of black families in that mm -hmm. private school. And the head of the school was an African-American yeah. male. So that yeah. was amazing. And I'm really proud of that decision because I feel like my son can navigate both sides. Yeah. And he has a comfort that I never had. So, okay. and he even schools me sometimes, which yeah. is a little embarrassing, but true. <laughs> yeah. Some of my friends that went to all black schools and then black colleges, they don't have the comfort to navigate white worlds and That's white streets. Um, yeah. Which, it's a skill. I, it's I, definitely I, a skill. Well, yeah. Or if you have experience with them, then you know, you feel comfortable because that's how you were brought up. So that helped me too. I, I'm not going to say it didn't, but yes, you, you, you're right. There's sometimes where I had to say, uh, "How can I be less threatening?" Um, yeah. And then one day I just start giving up about it. <laughs> I was just like, well, if you scared of me, that's you. I'm godly. I'm good. I'm humorous. Sometimes, <laughs> you yes. know, uh, you're scared of me because you're scared of stereotypes and myths that you adhere to. I don't yes. fit those. Um, so, but yeah. But I would say the moral of the story for me is in the black community: just be yourself. That's really the bottom line for me, and that's what I found so endearing about Paula is that she was just real about it. Like, this is who I am. And I think everybody should just be like that because we all know in the black community, we accept anyone. We accept anyone and everyone. I mean, even white people who want to be, you know, want to, um, indoctrinate uh, themselves. Well, not even in, just want to interact <laughs> 
with the black community, we're okay with that. As long as you just come in, you can just be yourself. Don't try to quote unquote act black, you know, and we embrace everyone. All you need is a desire to just embrace the culture. And that's what I think Paula had. That was, she was on her own journey to immerse herself more into her own community. And of course we're going to be, I think, open to that. And she was just honest about what she did not know, what she did not understand, asked questions. And I mean, what's not to love and um, embrace about that? And I yeah. think that's just who we are as a people. We accept have, anyone who wants to accept us. I have students like that now. And their reasons for coming to an HBCU is for that reason. Okay. You know, um, what? I, I didn't because they they want to familiarize themselves with their culture and their and, and their blackness. Yeah. So they'll come in and one girl said, I don't know all the dances or all the slangs. And one of one of my <laughs> students in the class said, Girl, we got you. Don't worry about it. You see what I'm saying? You know, That's so, how we do. That's how so, we do. Yeah, we embrace because yeah. the fact that she came to a HBCU speaks volumes in itself. I just knew. I had to uh, come. My story about attending the HBCU real quick was on Thanksgiving one day, my grandma, who's from Philadelphia, uh, she's from Southwest Philly, right? She oh, came down that. for Thanksgiving. And my father and I drove to the, to the bus station to pick her up. So this bus pulls in, it says Howard on the side of it. And so there were a lot of uh, black folks getting off the uh bus this is when jordash and sassoons were out back in the days those jeans <laughs> yeah. and yep. they were getting off the bus they had on the kind of like a starter jacket that said howard university and so i went over you know to i was like who's howard and they was like it's howard university ain't no party like an a too far there they were slightly inebriated and i was like <laughs> It's a, it's a, they said it's a college, an all black college in DC. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. They said, you gonna go to college? I said, yeah. And they started to give me kisses on my cheek, like a lot of them. Yeah. Like maybe like 13 other women just came out. <laughs> it was like, oh, he's so cute. I was a ninth grader. And so I went back over to my dad. <laughs> my dad said, boy, why you let all them girls kiss you on the cheek like that? I said, I don't know, but I know I'm going to Howard University. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah, it's that's it's, a it's great not like story. he came over to protect me. He let it happen. But that's when I first found out. I knew Grambling Morgan because I used to play football at Yankee Stadium. Like, um, But I didn't really understand the significance until they spoke to me mm -hmm. that night. And like I said, I applied to like 22 HBCUs, not wow. one white college. And I was discouraged by my white counselors in high school that they, they yeah. one of them actually said you're throwing your life away oh my god yeah, yeah. to me I, and he was a great man he was a great guy i said mr freeman i can't believe that came out of your mouth wow i said like because i'm attending a black institution that's been around since before 1900 you're telling me that i'm throwing my life away all right, so it was it was it was interesting because they tried to get my mom to give me the applications, and I kept telling her, "I don't want these applications. I'm not going to a white school." Because I knew what 
the school was doing to me or not doing enough for me. So I was mm -hmm. craving something then. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. Yeah, and as Kim knows, you know, my son did break my heart because I had him all set. He was headed to Morehouse. Yeah. And then he made a U-turn and, you know, well, what you going to do? <laughs> it's not over yet. You never know. You never know. Uh, yeah, well, anyway. <laughs> That, that thought, train you know, has left the station, huh? But you know what's interesting? We had a conversation about it. And what my son said, which I think there was a part of me that was projecting, like I, if I could go back in time, I would have loved to have gone to an HBCU for undergrad as well. And I thought he would really, you know, he could go to Morehouse. He could get that whole experience. And he told me like in many ways, like he, some of his best friends go to Morehouse. He loves it. He thinks it's an excellent institution, but he's like, I don't need that experience. So in a way, I feel like maybe I did a good job because he is very comfortable in both worlds and he has lots and lots of black friends and, you know, not as many white friends, but he certainly has white friends. So I guess in many ways, you know, he's fine. Of so. course you did a good job. Yeah. I try. I try. <laughs> he wasn't easy, but <laughs> we got him through. We got him through. Yes. Yeah. So, but okay. congratulations to you guys on your podcast. I'm so proud of you both. You know, you got to like get up on the horse and do it. Yeah. You guys are doing it. I'm an avid listener. Anyone okay. who's listening to this, please join, subscribe, whatever it is you guys do. Oh. <laughs> I appreciate really, that. Um, <laughs> I've learned a lot listening to you guys. So thanks for having me on. Absolutely. You're welcome. See you next time. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't have anything else to talk about. Oh, yes, you do. There's plenty of stuff to talk about. So we're going to give it up to Paula. Is it you, Doe? Yes. Yes. All right. Well, all right. And let us move on. Here we go, yo. Here we go, yo. So what, so what, so what's the scenario? Here we go, yo. Here we go, yo. So what, so what, so what's the scenario? Here we go, yo. Here we go, yo. So what, so what, so what's the scenario? Here we go, yo. Here we go, yo. So what, so what, so what's the scenario? Okay, this is one of our new segments right now. It's called Scenario. Thank you, uh, Tricor Quest and leaders of the new school for that intro. Okay, uh, so, so this week, what, what's our... Okay, so today we want to talk about a question out of the little pink book called Love and Sex, the book of questions on love and sex. And question number two says... At the beginning of a relationship, do you trust your new partner unless there is something specific to make you do otherwise? Or do you withhold your trust until he or she has earned it? What do you think, Dr. A? So you gonna, do, is it, do you have blind trust in your relationships at the beginning? No, not <laughs> deep blind trust. Like, do I trust... Her to go to give her my keys to go to her car because she left her book bag in there. Yeah, I do trust that. <laughs> Those are small trusts. Right. Um, but there's other things like I don't trust her with 
all the information or my backstory yet. Um, I don't trust the with that because it's too early. And I say, when you get to know me, then you get to know more intimate details about me and you get to know more intimate details about me and my family dynamics. Um, you know, that's when I think we're moving along and we're building something, then I can introduce you to my friends. So I would trust you to talk with them or them to talk with you. These are the things that it, it takes some time. And I think a marker with me when I'm starting to completely trust, one is funny. One is um, physical love marker, you mm -hmm. know. Um, I'm going to have to trust you if, if we're doing that. And the other one <laughs> is when I'm comfortable enough around you to use the restroom, you know. Okay. That's, you mean that's number one or number two or number three? We just leave it at the restroom. <laughs> I, I don't know what three is. Uh, <laughs> Both. Uh, one and two. Oh, okay. I thought three might have been throwing up. Or something. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I know y'all might think out there like, oh, come on, man, that's weird. But yeah, basically, uh, I I I trust incrementally. Like my partner uses that word a lot. So yeah, I trust gradually. Well, I I would pretty much, I guess, agree with you because. There's like basic trust that you would have for someone. And I think you addressed that, like giving an example of giving someone the keys to maybe get something out of your car. But I think just in general, we have to, there's a certain amount of trust you have for anyone, like people that you don't know. For example, when we drive, we trust that everybody's going to follow the rules of the road. You know, you trust that when you take, some medication that it's going to do what they said it's going to do. and It's not going to kill you, you know, things like that. Like you kind of, and then in relationships, you just, you know, you, there's basic trust that you, that you have for someone. You don't, you don't, you know, think they're necessarily going to um, harm you in any way. Maybe, you know, if they're normal, <laughs> I guess you, um, so you kind of just have basic trust, but I would agree with you that, true like deep trust for someone I think is earned over time just like you said so it's gonna I mean for me it takes a long time for me to observe someone over a long period of time what's a long period of time uh years Ooh. before I mean I still have trust issues with people like not with your significant other. Read the question. And we talking about relationships, right? right? Right. Right. At the beginning of a relationship, do you trust your new partner unless there's something specific to make you do otherwise? Do you just blindly trust this person that you just got into a relationship with a new partner? If we're dealing with each other. No, no I don't. You got to learn we're it dealing, If we're dealing with each other for a year, then I within that year, I am going to trust them. Um, and it might, it might depend on how much we communicate. Like if we communicate once a week, maybe not so much, but if we're getting to the point where we talk to each other every day, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 
probably going to reveal some things a little at a time. Okay. Well, I just feel like you have to stand the test of time for me. And that is, I have to see, I have to observe this person's behavior in uh, various You said years though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just me. I got, maybe I got trust issues. I don't know. But yeah, I'm I'm only going to trust. The trust issue you have that will take more than a year for you to tell them. Do you know? Well, I think you don't have to reveal it because it could be. I'm I'm assuming it's real private because you're not going to let it no, out. No, no, it's just going to take me a while to because when you're dating. Um, even the, even if you're dating someone exclusively, you really can't control what someone is doing outside of your relationship. So you they can't can do that like, outside of a 25 year marriage. Thus why you need, <laughs> that's why I think you need to, you need to be tested over. A, the question is, do you trust somebody enough long period of time? Do you trust somebody enough to let them hurt you? Snack on that for a second. Well, that that's the thing. There's always that possibility that right. you could be hurt, whether right. it's day one or 60 years. Right. <laughs> so, But I you're mean, believing that person that wouldn't hurt you, but if they did, they wouldn't hurt you drastically. Well, I mean, I don't know how you measure hurt, but I guess it depends on the person. Some people are more sensitive than others. So lying, hurt you. Li lying. Let's say a simple lie. Let's say the thing that happened to you the other day, we won't reveal that, right? You asked the person a particular question. They weren't forthright with you or fully mm -hmm. forthright with you. Mm -hmm. And it pissed you off, mm -hmm. right? Um, that hurt you. But you have built up enough trust in your life and in your relationship where you can forgive that. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, see, because if that would have if that would have happened, different. if that would have happened very, very early, right. It would be it would be different. Exactly. Because yeah. I mean, but see, I guess that's another thing. It depends on the type of relationship it is. I mean, there's a dating relationship and then there's a marriage relationship. Those are two totally different relationships. Because when you're in a marriage, you're in a committed relationship. So if you were dating and something like that happened for me, I would run for the hills because if this person is lying at the beginning of a relationship, it's not going to get no better. Because you on your best behavior at the beginning of a relationship. So I'm thinking, oh, this person can't be trusted. You're going to lie about like little stuff that don't, you don't That's what I'm saying. It, it depends. I would run for the hills. I'd be it, like, it depends. Says, I'm out. It depends on the lie. It does. What type of lie you doing? Yeah. I like mean, if I say to you, like, hey, I I'm coming to get you from school. Are you ready? And you not ready, and you tell me, yeah, I'm ready because you want me there. So when you are done, I can walk out and I don't have to wait. That's a lie to please yourself, 
to make sure that you're taken care of and you you're not really caring about well, you can forgive uh, that one yeah so i can forgive that that's a small little okay but when there's different stuff like wait your your name's not jessica yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> or I'm not seeing anyone else, and then you see somebody walking out of their room, right? Exactly. I'm just, right. That's a, uh, okay. Who's uh, that? Oh, that's just seeing him. <laughs> yeah. Right. So yeah, so, I would yeah. say yeah, it depends, but I think we both agree that you have to earn trust over time. Yes. Yeah, I do agree right. with that. All right. So yeah, so that is our scenario for the day. Here we go, yo. Here we go, yo. So what, so what, so what's the scenario? Here we go, yo. Here we go, yo. So what, so what, so what's the scenario? And let us move on. I need some good advice. Tell me I'm wrong or right. This is a choice to make. Please help decide my fate. You need to think it through. Give me your point of view. This is bothering me. You got a remedy? I'm feeling sad and blue. What you think I should do? What you think I should do? What you think I should do? All right. Advice from the two. The question of the week. Should my wife pay more of the house bills because she makes more? What are your thoughts on that? Well, just in general, I think every relationship is different and people have to do what they feel comfortable doing. Um, but I think that the bills should be split equally. Period. I mean, there's some relationships where men will, even if a woman makes more, the man decides that he wants to be the sole provide, you know, provide for his family and doesn't even require his wife to pay anything. That happens in relationships too. So they just take on the full responsibility of paying the household bills and whatever money she makes, she can save it, invest it, buy gifts or whatever she wants to do for her family but she's not obligated to do it like some families run like that and i think that's fine but i think just as a general rule when you're in a marriage you're in a partnership and therefore that means to me generally speaking when it comes to the finances 50 50 i'm good with that so if your man made 2.3 million dollars a year and you made what you made it's still 50 50 on the bills well, I guess it would depend on the lifestyle. Like if you have a $2 million lifestyle, then you can't be 50-50. Cuz if I'm making a lot less than that, then I don't it's not even possible for me to do that. But if you have uh if but you are living way below your on, means, it then it depends on his lifestyle. On the lifestyle of the family. If you're living up to a $2 million income lifestyle versus, I mean, a lot of people live below their means. If you're living below your means and it's reasonable. Say you believe, you, you're, you're, you're living below your, your means or right. if you're not. Say you're living uh, a, a higher lifestyle. Like you got a house that costs 
$1.6 million, not $525,000. Okay, well, so that means that it's not even possible for her to split 50-50. She doesn't have it. You see what I'm saying? Okay. That's what what I'm saying. It just, it it depends on a lot. So you're saying when money is equal, 50-50? No, when the lifestyle is at a, a, a level that would allow for them to split split it 50 50 then i'm good with that but like i said every relationship is different people should do what they feel comfortable with like i said some people in some people in some in some um relationships or marriages the husband um takes on the full responsibility of paying the bills even when the wife can contribute, you see what I'm saying? So it's just, if that's what he wants to do and he feels comfortable doing that and that works for their family, that's what they should do. I'm just saying personally for me, I'm good with 50, 50. You like, should let him do that. You said she should let him do that. Should she let him do that? That's what he wants. That's what I'm saying. That's okay. That's what he wants. There's two people yeah. in the household. There's a lot if of my husband said, if tomorrow said, my husband said, I got it, babe, you ain't got it, you don't have to contribute to the bills. I will let him do that. What a, okay, obviously, he's doing what he can do. If he couldn't do it, he'd be like, No, I can't do it. Okay, but this, this still, you like, you could also respond with, like, No, this is my house too. I want to contribute to the bills. Oh, so you're gonna pull a, a Gabrielle Union. <laughs> No, I'm not pulling. I'm just saying. No, like, but that's yeah, how she, because that's what yeah, she that's was like. She, no, I got it. She yeah. thinks that's so what I'm basically saying. If a woman said to me, like, hey, and this might be for a lot of men, like, I, I got the mortgage. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And say, mm-hmm. for instance, she makes $100,000 more than I do. Let's mm-hmm. just say that to make uh-huh. it real, because if she made like, a million dollars more than I would be like, oh, okay. But I still would say, well, then I got the little bills. You know, I I would say that because I want to be a contributor to right. the, the household. Um, maybe that's based on my past experience and traumas. You know, when you hear things like, you know, like, well, what you paying? You know? So you think just as a general rule, the person who makes more should pay more a, a bigger percentage of the household bills? That's your general yeah, I think it should be as okay. they say, uh uh what's that word? Not prorated. Um um commensurate with your income. Yeah, or... but there's a word for it. Um I think it starts with an R. Um I think I know what you're talking about, but yeah. I can't think of the word. So really, but right, commensurate with your income. Yeah. So yeah, if 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 and I'm just saying like if if there's a substantial I don't call $20,000 a substantial amount of money uh, more, but I call $50,000 or $100,000 a substantial amount. Anytime you can have an extra salary over a person, like say for instance, she makes $100,000 more, that's a, that $100,000 can be a salary for somebody else. <laughs> I know, but the family could decide, okay, rather than you take your extra hundred thousand dollars and contribute more towards the bills they could say let's just put everything 50 50 and you take that extra income above and beyond what we need for our bills and invest it and then we could come up even more so it's not going you know what i mean but that person i don't know 
I always ask my students, I ask people this question. If you got $90,000 in the bank and your partner has $4,000 in the bank, what's up with that? Is that a good relationship? <laughs> it doesn't matter because it's all money. It's all community property. It's all money that you share as a family. Wait, Just so because it's, it's wait, in wait, wait, one wait. bank account versus another bank account does not wait, mean wait. that you don't have access to the money. Was, say you don't have access to his money. But if she, if you needed it, you think he's going to withhold it just because it's in another account? There's a lot of people that do that, Kim. I, I don't know you're what right. life is yeah, I mean, you're right. There's you're plenty right. of people who do that. You're like, right. There are reasons for it sometimes. Well, you got a spending problem, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you make just as much as I do, but you don't save anything. And then you want to munch off. This ends marriages, actually. Right. That's true. People spending habits in marriages. Like even there's there's no fight and there's love going on. When that situation comes back, like, dag. I know somebody who constantly had a problem with their spouse borrowing or at getting money from them. I said, Well, that's because you're not looking at it as it it's in one pot. And then y'all have y'all agree what the allowances is are for both individuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot with. This well, a- see, that's why I think you can't just have one hard and fast rule. It just depends on everybody's specific situation, and everybody's relationship is different. So that's why I think people should just do what works for them. I, I I'm kind of, I hesitate to ca- kind of have a general rule. You know what I mean? Because every relationship is different. It's just going to depend. But for me. If you're in a marriage, it's a partnership, and you both make similar incomes, well, even yeah. if one makes a little more than the other, just put everything 50-50. Okay, that's true, but that's in that predicament. So I put you in another one. The one makes substantially more right. than the other one. What, right. what happens then? I know if I made substantially more, I wouldn't have my partner bear what I'm, you know, the same thing I'm doing. There's no way I would do that because well, I. Well, what's the problem if you can both comfortably pay fifty percent of the household bills, regardless of who makes more? You can both comfortably pay fifty percent, fifty fifty. There's nothing wrong, wrong with that with because that? that's like you said. Even though your man might make or your lady might make eight hundred thousand dollars you guys are still living in a three hundred and sixty thousand dollar house so in that case you're right i agree with you and you made a good point like well if you're living uh below your seven hundred thousand dollar house lifestyle yeah that person that's anchoring is going to be like okay you need to pay this percentage and i'll pay this there you go yeah so i i just look what's for what's fair and equitable right you know, um, I'm not on and people will hurl rocks at me right now. I'm not on this masculine thing where I feel like I got to take care of everything. I've been released myself from that. Good. Because that's a heavy burden. Well, it's, it's not that. It's just like you might be doing your part and then other people take advantage of that and do things outside of the relationship. So I'm not trusting that anymore. I remember when one of my girlfriends specifically where I was paying anything. And one of my boys said to me like, yo, make her pay too. I see. She's like, he was like, she's an adult. 
You know, she goes to work, she makes money, she lives under that household too. So make her pay. I felt because, and I was only making like $25,000 more than she was that I said, oh, I got this. You worry about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that didn't turn out good. Not (laughs) not the money situation, the relationship situation didn't turn out. Because that doesn't mean somebody's going to respect you or still be loyal to you or, you know, be dedicated to you. So afterwards, you're like, wow, I did all of this for this individual and look what happens. Um, And I know it wasn't about the money, but I still was tore up about that. And it put me in a different direction. Like, I feel like if my husband, if I was married to someone who was like really wealthy and they could afford to finance our whole, our lifestyle, then I would be okay with them paying everything. If that's what they wanted to do, I would still, I I feel like, I kind of feel like I would still want to work and like be a little bit independent. Yeah. And that would, for me, I would, he would just not have to worry about, um, unless he was giving me a gift because he wanted to give me a gift. He wouldn't have to worry about quote unquote, taking care of me like i could just Did have you? a job and it just de- do the stuff that i wanted to do like get my hair done get my nails done it still depends because you whatever. dating a guy whose salary is 42 million dollars a year and you still working and making your money he still can slide you an allowance too. be like because this is the lifestyle we lead and you know right. here's the extra four thousand dollars a week it's like that he gave me sixteen thousand dollars a month on top of my already amount so and you're right if you needed something that person would give it to you but i'm when i talk money i I talk more realistic money and what i mean by that is the majority of uh the population is closer to these salaries yeah not ron james salary you know what i mean those are totally different lifestyles i don't even compare and i'm happy for them and how they're living and the fun that they're having, you know, uh, but that's nowhere near my lifestyle. So, yeah, that's advice from the two. Advice from the two. Let us move on. And let us move on. Like this. Keep it, keep on. Yes, so today we want to highlight as our little-known Black history fact, Gladys West. Gladys West, she was born in 1930, and she worked as a mathematician collecting and analyzing satellite data of Earth's surface until she eventually created a detailed model and helped develop the technology that resulted in GPS the global navigational system, satellite system that can accurately determine your position anywhere on earth. Gladys West created the global positioning system. 
our little known black history fact. Let us move on. Okay, so our last plug is always our podcast, Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay. We talked about this before, but I think it's appropriate that we bring it up together. Again, Higher Learning uh, is the name of the podcast where they dissect the biggest topics in black culture, politics, and sports. Two times per week they do this. They will wade into the most important and timely conversations, frequently inviting guests on the podcast and occasionally debating each other so that is higher learning higher higher <laughs> learning well all right and let us move on oh hell no oh hell no this is something i really didn't want to talk about but it was <laughs> big news and when i said this is some funky news this is some funky news <laughs> So apparently it was a plane on its way to Barcelona. It was two hours in the flight. And somebody on the plane had a bad stomach eruption, which mm. led, uh, led to some black lava uh, uh, coming out. And it was so bad. It was all up and down the aisles that they had to turn the plane around. It mm, landed mm, mm, mm. because they could not take the smell on the plane. I hate smell, so I know this would be tragic to me. This mm. would be absolutely tragic. Yes, this was a Delta Airlines flight from Atlanta to Barcelona and with 336 passengers on board. I don't know. What do you think? Like, if you're two hours into your flight to Barcelona, and they tell you we're going to turn around and I would be so upset because you're just looking forward to going to Barcelona. But then again, on the other hand, I don't know if I could make it through a, a flight that somebody it was an eight hour flight. So you had six more hours, six more hours with so, that. Stench that's like, yeah, design. that's like sitting in the pig, pig pen all day. I know. Turn Golly. around. I wonder if they I had to like. <laughs> I would say turn it around. I wonder what they did to compensate the passengers, though, because this is just they gave free tickets, all kinds of stuff they did. Yeah, they should have, because this is just, oh my god! I said is... it was a shitty mess. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I don't know what to say, but I just don't understand how you could end up 
with diarrhea all up and down the aisles like that. To like, that magnitude, yeah. Yeah, you couldn't make it to the plane is only but so big. You couldn't make it to one of those little, it's a, a a bathroom at either end, you know. So I they didn't make it. That is so can you ima imagine the embarrassment? Oh my god. I'm I talking think, about what did you eat? After a while, it ain't embarrassing. You just like, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I would just be mortified. I'd be like, oh my God, I'm so, y'all, I am so sorry. I did not. You be one to jump off the plane. I'm not. <laughs> just give me a parachute. I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, poor thing. Okay. Well, yeah, that, that was, that was definitely something. And let us move on. All right. So what happened? So we give it up this week to Coco Golf, who won uh, the U.S. Open yesterday at the age of 19. Wow. Was this her first Grand Slam? Yes, it was. Congratulations, Coco Golf. I love her. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Girl. Yeah. She did that. She won uh, in three sets. Uh, so congratulations to Coco Golf. She started playing professional, I believe, at the age of 15. She's 19. And hopefully, and I'm sure she will, she'll have plenty Many more of, yeah, of uh, Grand Slam wins. So Coco Golf, that's... <laughs> All right, just trying to get to the end there. <laughs> All right, so our plugs for the day were the product glasses, faces, body, soul, jewelry, and Van Lathan and uh, Rochelle Lindsay's podcast, How You Learning. Uh, <clears throat> words of wisdom for the week was what this country needs is more unemployed politicians by the great Angela Davis. Uh, what's going on was the brick in the face uh, by a young uh, uh, African-American lady who she felt men didn't come to her rescue, particularly black males. Fannie Willis' letter that addressed uh, Mr. Jordan and Pete Diddy returning to lucrative music rights to his former, uh, his bad boy artist, I should say. Um, our interview for the week was Paula Udo. It was a great interview. We have to have her back. Uh, the scenario that we did dealt with trust. Advice from the two dealt with paying bills in the house between the spouses. How do we divvy that up? Our little known Black History Month was Gladys West, right? And our, all hell no was diarrhea on the plane y'all and we just gave it up to coco golf so we want to thank you for listening and as always thank you everybody for taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out with us and as always in parting we wish you love peace 
and knowledge for your soul. For your soul, y'all. We'll see y'all next week.